Aragorn was a stern warrior. He was a ranger charged with the task of looking after the hobbits. <clears throat> but Aragorn was also a king. He was the rightful heir to the throne of Gondor. But the throne had been empty for centuries. And people had forgotten about the royal line. Most people thought that the whole royal line had died out and that they doubted that there were any descendants of the, of the throne left alive. Instead of a king sitting on the throne in, Dong, in Gondor, now there was a steward. One day, out of the blue, Denethor, steward of Gondor, hears wind that Aragorn is a descendant of the kings of Gondor and rightful heir to the throne. But he refuses to believe the rumours. How can someone claiming to be king suddenly come on the scene after hundreds of years with no royal line? This man didn't look like a king. He didn't come like a king. How could he possibly be king? Well, as we come towards the end of the book of Mark, all those around Jesus were asking the same question. His disciples had abandoned him as he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. Today we'll see that the Jewish leaders scoffed at Jesus' claim to be Messiah, God's anointed king. The Romans mocked him and taunted him, abused him and crucified him. A king misunderstood, abandoned, forsaken. But we'll also see that it's in the very climax of his suffering and humiliation as he hangs on that cross, that the king triumphs over good and evil and sin and death and he brings in his kingdom. I've got my clicker. As we've been seeing over the last couple of weeks, coming to the end of the book of Mark, Mark slows time right down. And here in chapter 15, it slows down even more for one climactic day. The tension builds as we come towards the climax, the last day of Jesus' life. It starts with the Jewish leaders, the Sanhedrin, reaching a verdict in Jesus' trial. They condemn him for claiming to be the Messiah, God's chosen one. He is taken to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, only he has the authority to pass judgment and bring the death sentence to Jesus. Pilate, a kangaroo court convenes, but still Pilate finds no basis for condemning Jesus. But the Jews are baying for blood, the innocent blood of Jesus. They demand the release of Barabbas, a murderer, and the death of Jesus. The die is cast. The wheels of injustice start to turn. As if an innocent man dying is not enough, he is mocked by the soldiers, cruelly whipped and abused. In chapter 14 we are told that he was abandoned by his friends, betrayed by one of his disciples, and now he is left alone to face the humiliation and agony of the most brutal form of execution 
that the Romans could invent. Mark spares the reader the terrible details of Jesus' death, but the focus is on his total aloneness. The man who was adored by the crowds, who never rejected those who came to him, who faithfully obeyed his father, who loved like no one in history had ever loved before, now spurned by his followers, his friends and the crowds. And then we hear the most shocking cry of agony from Jesus' lips. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Has even God, Jesus' own father, joined the crowds and abandoned his son? Well, Mark leaves the question hanging. There are no direct answers. But then some odd details to add to the drama. A darkness, an unnatural, unsettling darkness comes over the land at the height of Jesus' nightmare. And when, the, when he dies, the curtain in the temple is torn in two. And a centurion, a Roman officer charged with keeping order in the state, at the site, announces that surely Jesus was the Son of God. And that's it. Spare on details, high on drama. The climax of the whole book, the event that Jesus had repeatedly pointed to as being his goal, the whole reason he had come. So how do we make sense of it? What does it mean for us? Let's try to unpack this amazing chapter of Mark's Gospel. A key to understanding what Mark wants to get across is to see what he emphasises. Because he doesn't waste words. The detail, because he doesn't waste words, the details that he puts in are important and we need to take notice of them. In our first section, verses 1 to 20, there's something regarding Jesus' identity who he claims to be, that Mark really wants to drive home. I'm going to get you to do a, a bit of work just for a minute. Turn to your neighbour, have a look at, just scan your eye down verses 1 to 20, that first section, and tell me what is it that Mark really emphasises? What, what do you think it is that, that he wants to show us? Just take a minute. Okay, I'm going to cut it short there, so I know you didn't have much time. Have we got a brave soul willing to uh, offer a suggestion? What is it that Mark really wants to emphasise about Jesus' identity in that first section? Jesus' identity. Oh, I know you all know the answers. You're just not brave enough to say, that's all right. Howie. Jesus is king. Excellent. We see it in verse 2, verse 9, verse 12, verse 18. Mark is hammering the point home. Jesus is the king of the Jews. He claimed to be king of the Jews. He was condemned for being king of the Jews. The other major thread that ties this section together is that he is a king who is misunderstood. 
rejected, despised. And the irony is, notice, that it's only Pilate, the unjust governor, the brutal governor from the hated Roman overlords, who makes a half-hearted attempt to try to release Jesus and defend him. But his own people, the Jewish leaders and the soldiers, they all sell him out, mock him and deride him. Pete talked about Mark giving us Easter eggs a couple of weeks ago, little hints hidden in the text. But I think it's more than a hint that we... The theme of a despised king is one of those, but I think it's more than a hint. Mark actually wants to drive the point home. What he does hint at, though, and if we were Jewish readers, we wouldn't fail to see that Jewish readers who knew their scripture, this passage would be ringing lots of bells in their heads. Our minds would go back to Isaiah 53. Isaiah was writing about 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, while the while the the Israelites were still in exile. Isaiah 53 is the most famous of a number of passages that talk about a servant who God would raise up to save his people. And we're going to look at part of Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53 verse 3 reads, He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. There are many other details in this chapter that Mark wants to show as being fulfilled in the suffering and death of Jesus. As well as being despised and rejected, Mark tells us that Jesus was silent before his accusers. Again, let's go on and read verse 7 of Isaiah 53. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus is clearly Isaiah's servant, a man of sorrows who we will see later would be punished to bring healing and peace to the people. A figure raised up by God as his chosen instrument to bring his people back into relationship with God. To bring his people back from exile. And not only that, but we're also told in Isaiah that the servant's work will go way beyond Israel. That he would somehow bring salvation to the nations. But how does this fit with his claim to be king? His claim to be Messiah. Not a suffering servant, but God's anointed king. Where is this king of the Jews who was powerless even to answer his accusers? Mark builds a tension between this claim to be king on the one hand and the reality of fulfilling the role of Isaiah's suffering servant. As the story unfolds and the wheels of injustice keep turning, Jesus' enemies show what they think of his claim to be king. 
In the next section, the king dies the death of the worst of criminals and is crucified on the cross. Once again, Mark reminds us why he is dying. Verse 26, the charge against him read, King of the Jews. The chief priests and teachers of the law continued to mock him. Verse 31, he saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Even those crucified with him heaped insults on him. They're expressing how utterly inconceivable it is for the Messiah, the king sent from God, who would destroy Israel's enemies, bring glory once again to God's people, and show himself as the glorious conqueror. How utterly inconceivable it is that he would end up dying a death of shame on a Roman cross, killed by his enemies. No, this man from Nazareth was a troublemaker. He was deluded. All his fine-sounding words had come to nothing. He was many things, but a king wasn't one of them. And so the tension of the story builds as the cruel wheels of injustice continue to turn turn mark leaves the question hanging is jesus really a king after all where is his kingdom are his tormentors right after all will all his dreams and plans end up dying with him on that cruel cross well then as the drama comes to a climax things get even darker for the king of Israel. Misunderstood even by his friends, betrayed and scorned, Jesus is now abandoned and forsaken even by God himself. Let's look at verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? If the unfolding events so far seem strange up to this point, now the unthinkable happens. The Messiah is rejected by his own father. What's going on here? Didn't Jesus know this was going to happen? Didn't he on multiple occasions predict his own death? Didn't he even say that that was his real purpose for coming to earth? We're given a clue about the meaning of this cry back in verse 33 with the darkness. It's an unnatural or pervasive darkness that notice it says it comes across, comes upon the whole land. That darkness has a precedence in Scripture. And that precedent is in Israel's history when they were in bondage in the land of Egypt. One of the plagues that God sent on Egypt when Pharaoh refused to let the Israelites go was a darkness that covered the whole land 
for three days. This darkness lasted three hours. And I think Mark clearly wants to show the connection between the two. The darkness against Egypt was an act of judgment upon Pharaoh, the Egyptian people and the Egyptian gods. And this darkness when, when Jesus died is also God's judgment. Unbelievably, Jesus, the perfect son of God, is bearing the full weight of God's wrath, God's anger, his judgment against the sin of the world. Once again, Isaiah 53 helps us interpret what happened on the cross. Isaiah 53 verse 4 says this, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Punished by God for all the rebellion and idolatry, for the refusal of you and I and every human being born under the sun to give God his rightful glory and we've and turned our backs on him. Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. By his wounds we are healed. Because Jesus was forsaken, we can be forgiven. Earlier on in Mark, Jesus used different language to say the same thing. Mark chapter 10 verse 45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to, did not come to serve, but to be served. Sorry. <laughs> did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He paid the price to buy us back. He took the punishment we deserved upon his own shoulders. What an impossible message. No wonder the message of the cross has been a stumbling block to so many. The way our world works is to say that we earn what we get. We work hard, we live a good life, we get rewarded. No. The message of the cross flies in the face of all our pride and arrogance and independence and says that we are powerless to save ourselves. It's only by accepting the impossibly good news that we can be forgiven and find peace with God. So the king is misunderstood, betrayed, then forsaken by his own father. But there's a twist in this tale. Like any good drama, all is not what it appears to be. There's an unexpected outcome to this tragedy. We're really only given a hint of it by Mark, but it's a powerful hint and it's enough for us to put the pieces together and see that in the humiliation of the cross, the king shows himself after all. And more than that, that his kingdom is brought 
to this world right in the middle of its darkest hour. And we come to our last section. A kingdom come, verses 38 and 39. There are two highly significant details here that Mark adds after Jesus breathes his last. One of them involves the temple and the other a Roman centurion. Firstly, the temple. Look at verse 38. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. We've encountered the temple before for those of you who've been with us through our journey through the book of Mark. Back in chapter 11, Jesus clears the temple, if you remember, and pronounces judgment on the whole temple system. Along with judgment for the religious leaders, because the temple and the leaders failed to bear fruit like the fig tree earlier in the chapter. Jesus condemned the people there in the temple for buying and selling and making it a den of robbers, as he described it, where it should have been a house of prayer for all nations. In other words, Jesus was angry at the people, for present, at the people in the temple for preventing those on the outside from coming into the temple and worshipping God and impeding their relationship with God. Keep all this in mind as we try to understand the curtain being torn. Now there were two curtains in the temple, one near the front of the temple that led to the court of Israel it was called, the, the, the big main um, court, and the other one guarding the way to the, uh, a little room right in the centre of the temple, the Holy of Holies. Mark doesn't make it clear which one is torn and in a sense it doesn't really matter because the meaning is the same. Like the clearing of the temple, this is an act of judgment. By being completely torn in two, the structure and the purpose of the temple are undermined. The whole system is crumbling and Jesus' death brings in a whole new way of relating to God. The other thing that the curtain being torn in two does is it opens up the temple. With Jesus' death, those barriers that the people put in place that the curtain represented are now taken away. He was forsaken and cut off from his Father so that we could be brought near to God and have full access without any barrier, without any impediment to enjoy his forgiveness and mercy. So the curtain being torn shows that judgment on the temple and the system it represented has now come. And it's the death of the king that brings that judgment. The father's judgment did fall on the son, but the cross also brings judgment against the powers of this world, against sin, against death, against Satan and against all the evil powers of this world, including the temple system. As soon as Mark tells us about the curtain being split in two, before we have time to catch our breath, the scene moves on to the centurion. Let's pick it up in verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. We 
We're not told the details about how Jesus died, only that he breathes his last in verse 37. But there's something amazing about his death that amazes the centurion. It may have been how quickly he died. We're told that in verse 44 that Pilate was surprised that Jesus had died so quickly. Usually it can take days of agonising, lingering on for people to die um, of crucifixion. But Jesus died within that one day. Just as Jesus was in control of every detail of his trial and, and death, the whole process of being, of being um, sold and forsaken, Jesus was also master of his own death. Whatever it was, the Roman centurion spoke extraordinary words. The term son of God was the title that the Roman emperor took on him for himself. In their pride, they claimed divine ancestry. But here this servant of Caesar, this servant of Rome, confesses that it's not Caesar who is king, but this king of the Jews. What Mark is doing here is tying a thread between God's judgment on the temple and the identity of Jesus as the Son of God. The full identity of Jesus as God's Messiah, as King, the King who is God himself, is revealed at the cross. The cross brings the beginning of judgment on the powers of this world. The cross is the beginning of the end. The final end will come when Jesus returns and his glory will be fully revealed. But the beginning is now at the cross. But there's something about when Jesus dies that tells us about the, something else about when Jesus dies that gives us a clue about the meaning of the cross. This is perhaps more like one of those Easter eggs takes a bit of digging. It doesn't just leap out at us, but it's worth finding just the same. Back in Mark 14, verse 1, Mark tells us a significant detail about the timing of the trial and Jesus' death. He says the Passover was only two days away. Two days later, as the Passover was just beginning, Jesus dies. The Passover was perhaps the most significant celebration in the Jewish religious calendar. It remembered God saving his people from the land of Egypt. Remember the story we heard earlier on with the darkness? That was part of it. God judges the Egyptians, he judges Pharaoh and miraculously brings his people out of Egypt. And then the Israelites were to take a lamb, kill the lamb, take the blood from that lamb and put it on their doorposts. An angel was then going to come and bring judgment upon all of Israel. Every firstborn male in Israel was going to be killed except for the Israelites who had the blood on their doorposts and the angel would pass over the Israelites and their firstborn would be saved. When Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples, 
He told them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He was in effect saying that he is the Passover lamb, sacrificed for us. And it's his blood that saves us. And the language of sacrifice that we saw in Isaiah 53 also brings that out and makes that clear. Now all that's reasonably clear, but what's a bit more hidden is that the Passover also represents the judgment of God. When the darkness comes, remember we talked about that as being the judgment upon the gods and upon Pharaoh, the gods of Egypt. We also saw how the darkness when Jesus dies represents judgment on Jesus and also the powers of darkness. And the tearing of the temple, curtain in the temple, is an act of judgment on the religious system that kept people out rather than welcoming them in. Jesus' death represents the ultimate Passover. The original Passover celebrates freedom from slavery. Jesus frees us from the chains of sin. And the connection of the cross to the Passover broadens the horizon of what his death did. More, more even than, than, than freeing us as individuals from sin and death. And that's a wonderful thing. But we need to broaden our horizon of the cross and to see that it deals with the cosmic powers and begins the work of restoring the whole of creation, a work that will be finished when Jesus returns. At the cross, Jesus fulfills the role of the suffering servant by dying for our sins in our place. But he also comes as king, the son of God. God himself came to earth to deal with our sin and to bring judgment on the evil powers. And he brings his kingdom in a way that no one expected. His death and humiliation that seemed to bring defeat actually spells victory and the coming of his kingdom now there's so much in this chapter and thanks for bearing bearing with me uh, there's been a lot of detail but still we've only begun to scratch the surface but you may be wondering well that's all great marshall but what's it all mean for me how does it affect me now i want to just finish off by suggesting two reasons why jesus death changes things for us number one the cross means that we can now face God. That's huge. It answers the question that the whole Bible is concerned with, and that is, how can a sinful people, a rebellious people, possibly live with a perfect holy God? Again, let's look to Isaiah. I haven't got it on the screen. Let's look at another just listen with me from another short verse in Isaiah a little bit on from Isaiah 53 Isaiah 57 verse 15 for this is what the high and exalted one says 
He who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. God is high and exalted. He is perfect, but we aren't. Because of our sin, we feel shame and isolation. Sometimes we hate ourselves. We often don't want to face other people, let alone face God. But as it says in Isaiah 57, though he is perfect, he also lives with the one who is contrite and lowly in spirit. And that is the one who has come to Jesus and recognised that only Jesus can deal with our sin and the one who has put their trust in Jesus. Jesus died to deal, for our, deal with our sin. He offers free forgiveness. If we accept that, he comes near to us and lives with us. No more condemnation. No more curtains in the temple. No more shame. And I want to urge you, friends, if you're here and you've never accepted Jesus, perhaps you've never really understood that message, then I urge you to put your trust in him. Don't carry that burden of sin and shame around with you. The second point of application I just want to make is that we've seen today how Jesus' kingdom came in the most unexpected, wonderful way. How it was when things seemed to be going pear-shaped, when the plans seemed to be completely unravelling for Jesus. He was at that very point that he was totally in control and that he won the victory and that he brought in his kingdom. God has a habit of doing that and working in that way with us as well. His kingdom doesn't come announced by trumpets and fanfare. He doesn't come with a huge show of force like the kingdoms of the world. He so often works through weakness and what looks like defeat. Life is full of struggles, pain, sickness, anguish. Maybe right now you're feeling hassled and stress because of work, pressures, or the expectations of family. The pressures of life just seem to be crushing you. Maybe you're burdened with your own sense of weakness and sin. Or perhaps you're dealing with disappointment, a failed relationship, struggles with your family, things not working out as you dreamed. Well, these are the things God used, uses to grow his kingdom. He works in our weakness. He uses the weak things of the world to defeat the strong. We have a king who knows sorrow. We have a king who suffered more than we can ever imagine. We have a king who understands and identifies in our weakness.
Amén.